0: Now, The Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity.
1: And welcome everyone to the Thursday edition of The Three Martini Lunch along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions, I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Yes, I said yesterday I wouldn't be here today, but the schedule changed, so I'm happy that I am. And Jim, it's good to be with you again. We're happy to report, and we're really not trying to make this happen. We have all good martinis again today. I don't know if it's the nice weather or just the news cycle listening to us day after day, but uh, we're uh, we're in a pretty good mood again today. We're also brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. Right now, NetSuite is also offering Customers' valuable insights with a free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits. That's at netsuite.com/slash martini. Much more on their services in just a moment. Jim, yesterday in our intro and then in our third martini, we talked about the Bob Mueller hearings before the House Judiciary Committee. Later in the day, he was before the House Intelligence Committee. But uh, one of the exchanges yesterday is our good martini. And there's a lot that could be said, certainly, about the Mueller testimony on Wednesday. Hakeem Jeffries is not only a Democratic congressman from New York, he's a member of the House Democratic leadership. He is the caucus chairman. And just like his uh, fellow Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee, it was obstruction of justice all the time during that particular hearing. And Hakeem Jeffries thought he had Trump nailed dead to rights, open and shut case, and he presented it to Bob Mueller in the final minute of his uh, five minutes of question and answer time. But the response he got from Bob Mueller wasn't exactly what he expected.
0: The investigation found substantial evidence that when the president ordered Don McGahn to fire the special counsel and then lie about it, Donald Trump, one, committed an obstructive act, two, connected to an official proceeding, three, did so with corrupt intent. Those are the elements of obstruction of justice. This is the United States of America. No one is above the law. No one. The president must be held accountable one way or the other. Let me, let me just say, I, if I might, I, I don't subscribe necessarily to your,
1: uh, the way you analyze that. I'm not saying it's out of the ballpark, but I'm not supportive of that analytical charge. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's a guy
0: out of the ballpark. I must have hit a home run. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, I was thinking about why the Democrats, first of all, they completely miscalculated what the impact of Mueller on camera was going to do. They really thought that they were going to get I'm trying to think of the really dramatic moments in congressional hearings. I don't know whether you'd think of the Watergate, you know, McCarthy have, you know, decency, sir. Ollie North would probably be the wrong example for them to cite. (laughs) Senator Robert Kelly saying that he had a list of mutants in his hand. All these, you know, moments in history of Congress that we all remember when there was real drama at a congressional hearing. And it didn't happen. I, I don't, I'm not enjoying all of the, the way Mueller is getting knocked around like a pinata, you know, between yesterday and today. But let's just observe. Robert Mueller is 74 years old, and it started to show that he's not the hard-charging young guy that he used to be. But I think the other thing also is that he very clearly he went into this, and he'd openly said this in his press conference. He'd said what he had to say. You know, the report was his testimony. He didn't have any additional bombshells. He didn't have anything more to add to that. So the question is, if you're Democrats, I guess, one, they just believe that having him on camera saying these things was going to have this dramatic uh, effect on public opinion. But also, I thought, like, you're really thinking about it, Democrats want to impeach the president. Uh, Some of them have wanted to impeach him since the moment he got sworn in. But, you know, having Mueller there and the whole reason they'd staked so much on the Mueller report was this idea of that ultimately it's going to be a permission slip. That in a way, look, we're not being partisan. We're not being extremist. Here's this respected former FBI director. Here's a guy who did a very extensive investigation. Here's the evidence, you know, Trump committed a crime. Ergo, we are the good guys when we are attempting to Trump to impeach the president, and he didn't really give him that. He did not come out. I think they wanted him to to you know somehow slip up at some point and say, "Yeah, you should impeach the president." And Robert Mueller is having none of that because I think you know, I, I really I don't think it's because Robert Mueller has a particularly high opinion of the president of the United States. His opinion of the president of the United States doesn't really matter compared to this. And what's more, I think Mueller believes it's not his decision that in ultimately you know, impeachment, the removal of the president of the United States is a political decision and it should be made through the political process. And the, by the way, members of Congress should be ready to accept the consequences of that political decision. That's the whole theme of the morning jolt today, which is like, look, Democrats, if you want to do this, go ahead and do this. Look, polling indicates 62% of Americans don't want Trump impeached. It's not Americans are loving Trump. It's just that they look, we're 15 months away from a presidential election. They'll have their chance to say so. And, you know, Democrats went into yesterday believing they could somehow change those facts on the ground and they just couldn't. And
1: now, you know, Jeffries and everybody else has a pretty decent amount of egg on their faces. No, that's exactly right. And there was also the Ted Lieu moment where he tried to get Mueller to say and did briefly that uh, that Mueller and his team had decided that Trump was right to be prosecuted for obstruction of justice, but then was stopped by the opinion of the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department that sitting presidents can't be indicted. And Mueller then later corrected the record saying, no, 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 that's not how it works. We knew from the get go that he couldn't be indicted. So we never even came to a determination whether he would have otherwise been indicted for this. Uh, He did also, of course, restate what the report says is that they couldn't uh, definitively exonerate the president, which was, of course, uh, something the Republicans brought up of How often are we supposed to be publicly exonerating people as opposed to determining whether or not they actually ought to face charges? The presumption of innocence ought to stand. So Jim, now it's an interesting spot for the Democratic leadership. As you mentioned, they didn't really get the the moments or the uh, clarity that they wanted. Yesterday, and as I think it was Susan Page on CNN this morning pointed out, the Democrats are still about two dozen votes short of even having a simple majority within their own caucus of moving forward on impeachment. So when you factor in all the Republican votes, they got a long way to go to get anywhere close to a majority. So Nancy Pelosi knows her numbers, and if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem growing businesses have, and that keeps them from knowing their numbers, is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on and so on. It's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources. And that hurts the bottom line.
0: Introducing NetSuite by Oracle. It's the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, you avoid unneeded headaches, all by managing your sales, finance and accounting orders and human resources instantly, right from your desktop
1: or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you as well. You'll learn how to optimize processes, drive operational excellence, sell across more channels, and much, much more. NetSuite by Oracle. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, and that's available at netsuite.com slash martini. That's netsuite.com slash to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. Again, netsuite.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move to our second good martini, and let's go out to Puerto Rico. Yes, it's part of America. I don't know how many times in the media since the hurricane and other issues have arisen in the news Wow, all these people from Puerto Rico are coming to America now. They were already in America, people. They, but- they were Americans, yeah, U.S. citizens from the beginning. <laughs> That's right. So the big scandal, of course, in the past couple of days, couple of weeks, is uh, Governor Ricardo Rossello. Uh, he is finally resigning. That's the good news. CNN. Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Rossello said he will step down next Friday after more than a week of protests calling for his resignation. Rossello announced in a uh, video on Facebook that he will resign August 2nd at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. The governor acknowledged many constituents wanted him gone. That's putting it mildly. And the recent protests had humbled him. The governor had been expected to announce his resignation earlier Wednesday as lawmakers were ready to begin impeachment proceedings. Justice Secretary Wanda Vasquez will likely take his place as governor. And so there's a lot of different factors here. There's still the ongoing issues related to the hurricane And then uh, the Center for Investigative Journalism published nearly 900 pages from a private group chat he was part of. And the exchanges, according to CNN, between the governor and his inner circle reveal a vengeful approach in running the government, including attacking journalists by discrediting stories and threatening to turn over political opponents to police. And there were other uh, derogatory terms aimed at uh, different folks that they were frustrated with. So uh, there was also widespread corruption allegations, Jim. So when you wad it all up together... In one giant snowball uh this was inevitable
0: yeah so i'm not going to pretend to be a puerto rico expert i did have a chance to uh hang out with one of the governors from a few years ago uh, luis fortino Buset, who was from governor from 2009 2013 on an nr cruise a little while back i think we did a cover piece on, on puerto rico and because of its unusual status as a u.s territory not a state, this, as you mentioned, you know, kind of popular perception that somehow it's its own country. Puerto Rico's got a decent number of problems even before the hurricanes uh, struck. could say, you know, perhaps an excessive economic reliance on tourism dollars, insufficient diversity in the economy, which made it, you know, very vulnerable to recessions whenever tourism slowed, just a general sense of mismanagement, waste, abuse, corruption, all that kind of stuff. Uh, hurricane Maria just did an absolute number on Puerto Rico. It was very bad. I wasn't thrilled with everything the president was saying about the, the reaction to Puerto Rico in the aftermath of the hurricane. On the other hand, I also felt like there was a lot of unfair comparisons of, by golly, you know, the National Guard was in New Orleans by, you know, three days after the hurricane. Why is it taking so long for USA to get to Puerto Rico? Well, because it's an island. <laughs> it's far away. There are no roads to Puerto Rico. Everything has to go in by ship. Once you got the ships to Puerto Rico, you needed to find functioning port facilities. And then once you found functioning port facilities, you needed to be able to get the aid to people who were further inland. And all of that was a great challenge to it. Did, you know, If you want to criticize the administration for, for you know maybe not handling everything with the response to Maria on Puerto Rico, all right, fine. But let's also observe that just as we saw with New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, local government matters, right? State government matters, people on the ground, the, the pre-establishing infrastructure, leadership, how prepared people are, all of that becomes problems. And also, I think there was a fascinating study, I think it was by The Economist a few years ago. You look at states that have kind of notorious reputations for corruption. I'm going to throw out New Jersey gonna throw <laughs> out Illinois with the consecutive streak of imprisoned governors. But let's observe, you know, look, very off, Louisiana up until Bobby Jindal had a really terrible reputation. Florida had a reputation that was pretty bad. Gulf Coast states had, you know, a bad reputation for corruption. And part of that was, look, because of your location, you're going to have hurricanes. Hurricanes happen. And then the federal government comes in with a big pile of money and says, OK, here's the money for rebuilding. And lo and behold, you ended up with people who were figuring out ways to scam the government out of the money or filing false claims or exaggerating the value. You know, this was a, a circumstance that set the stage for people if they wanted to try to do corrupt things. The opportunity was there. So as we're looking back on the response to Hurricane Maria and, and the, you know, the perception that Trump had handled this badly and he saw Puerto Ricans as foreigners and all that kind of stuff. Look, if Puerto Rico is slowly recovering from the hurricane and has problems, there were problems there on the ground. And you know that's the sort of thing that should be part of the conversation, uh, and I think was much less a part of the conversation, because it interfered with the narrative that Trump was a terrible guy who didn't care about Puerto Ricans.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, yeah, very reminiscent of Katrina. Not that the federal government did everything right there. Certainly they didn't. But Ray Nagin and Kathleen Blanco got some blame. Blanco certainly did, didn't even run for re-election. But the, it was disproportional, to say the least. And other governors have uh, shown exactly how to get it done. Rick Scott had a Uh, just a mountain of hurricanes, during his eight years as governor, and uh, did did, did a very good job responding to it. Greg Abbott doing the same uh, in the response to Hurricane Harvey. So let's move on, Jim, to our final good martini. And next week, of course, another doubleheader of presidential debates, this time on CNN. Wolf Blitzer not hosting, so... I'm guessing we'll be still told to stand by as they go to commercials, but uh, <laughs> it'll be Jake Tapper or Dana Bash doing it instead of Wolf. Maybe he'll do the pregame and postgame show. He'll be good for hype in that situation. But as we head into those debates, uh, the person who got a lot of attention coming out of the last round uh, is not holding on to the bump, it looks like. And that would be Kamala Harris, the California senator. Nate Silver over at 538.com writes... It looks as though something is happening following the first Democratic debate last month. If you look at the real clear politics average, Joe Biden has rebounded to 28.4 percentage points from a low of 26.0 percentage points just after the first debate. He was at 32.1 percent before the debate, so he's regained about two fifths of what he lost. Harris has fallen to 12.2 percentage points from a peak of 15.2. She was at seven percent before the debate, so she's lost about a third. Of what she'd gained. Harris is still in better shape than she was before the debates, but she's currently 16 points behind Biden instead of looking like she's on the verge of overtaking him. So Silver's point is: be careful of bumps in polls. Yes, there's sometimes a convention bounce, but when there's so many people in the race and so many different micro uh, stories that will be gone in a few days especially in this rapidly changing news cycle don't think that one really good moment on a debate stage is necessarily going to turn the tide for good.
0: yeah um the second i want to get into kamala harris because i think she in some ways i don't know fascinating is the right uh right term but you know so she's probably the x factor in a you know obviously going, what's probably going to be a very hard-fought democratic presidential debate um, kind of interesting that she, you know, broke into that first tier uh, status and, and, uh, up until Tulsi Gabbard a couple of days ago, it did not seem like many Democrats wanted to take any shots at her, It struck me as a dangerous course of action. But before, as, as we're already previewing the democratic debate on CNN, Greg, I'm curious, did you see that indeed before they start the national anthem will be sung? Really? Indeed. So now here's the next question. Do any of the Democratic presidential candidates take a knee? <laughs> I think that'd be a little risky even for them. All right. I, by the way, interesting question. So with we, we, people saying you're going to have the introduction, candidates required to leave using phones and watches. I guess nobody's going to have a George H.W. Bush moment looking at their watch. <laughs> uh, each campaign gets 30 tickets. And probably was the Inslee campaign who asked if the national anthem will be sung. So, honest to goodness, you know, if if if, uh, Washington Governor Jay Inslee chooses to take a knee during the national anthem, this this is why it could happen. By the way, I think the most awkward possible scenario, Greg, would be that if Inslee takes a knee, the other nine candidates (laughs) notice, and one by one they all start taking (laughs) knees because they don't want to be out lefty. What
1: if they play the what what if they play the Russian national anthem? You think Bernie will snap to attention? (laughs) He'll salute. (laughs) Um, but only, only the,
0: you know, it has, to, it has to be the Soviet national anthem. The Russian one today would be, you know, um, so the thing with Kamala Harris, like, you know, she went into this debate determined to take on Joe Biden and she did and Biden just looked, you know, slow footed and slow witted and, you know, my time's up, which is probably not something an older candidate should say, uh, particularly when there's this argument about it's time for a new generation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Biden says he's ready for it. Biden says he'll be prepared in the next debate, or something like that. Um, but here's the thing: let's say you know you're, you're Cory Booker or your Kirsten Gillibrand, or you know you're you're one of these you know, barely in the second tier, probably more accurately in the third tier type candidates. Well, look, we've already seen Biden has a glass jaw, right? You know, if you get down to you and Biden, you can make the generational argument and probably win that argument pretty well. Uh, it comes down to you versus Bernie. You can probably make the look folks We don't want to put up a socialist up against Donald Trump type uh, And of course once again the generational argument um, Plus all the other quirks of Bernie Elizabeth Warren look if it comes down to you versus Elizabeth Warren You play the per- woman of color card, right? You say look how dare you you, you, know, prof- you uh, You've you benefited from a system designed to help minorities and you're not a minority you know, Almost everybody else in that first tier if it's Beto you say he's a furry um. There's just all, you know, almost everybody else has got something fairly glaring except for Kamala Harris. So there's, you know, a couple of different areas, but none of them just come to mind and say, oh, yeah, there's no way she's going to win the Democratic nomination if that comes front and center. So a couple of days in the corner, I was thinking about, I mean, to me, the most obvious, uh, you know, there are a couple of people who have said Kamala Harris is a cop, and, and there are a couple, you know, arguments. But I think the single most glaring mistake that Kamala Harris has been making in, these, in this campaign so far. Is that she's a flip flopper and this general sense that she'll say whatever she has to say to please the audience in front of her? She was the oh, you know, she went after Biden and uh, on busing and then later come out and said, well, it's not like I support federal busing now. <laughs> um, a couple times she's gone back and forth on whether she'd allow you to keep private insurance. Uh, she agreed with Bernie Sanders at first that uh, felons should be allowed to vote from jail, and then a the couple of days later she says, no, 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 I totally didn't mean that. She's, you know, on her, you know, she insisted she could create Medicare for all. Without raising taxes on the middle class and even the Sanders campaign was saying come on This is rainbows and and unicorns type talk So that's the soft underbelly right this idea that she will say whatever she needs to say and then back away a few days later and hope nobody notices unless you call her out on that on that stage It's probably never going to catch up with her. I mean you look back to Trump. You look back to Obama presidential candidates like to make these big promises and you know the, the asterisks of the fine print gets forgotten about for later. So there's a long, proud tradition of, of kind of you know promising the moon and figuring out how to deliver it later. So to me that's where you know Kamala Harris is probably going to be easiest to, to you know if you want to go after her, you go after her. Um, I figure everybody else in that campaign, uh, everybody else in that field doesn't you know, wants to see her sink unnaturally on her own out of a sort of political gravity because otherwise it's you attacking a minority woman <laughs> on stage and i had this this interesting question of whether anybody in the Democratic party, um, particularly the you know older white males have the guts to do that or whether they just reflexively fear being accused of being racist and sexist and you
1: know, all that terrible stuff Well, in the Democratic Party of 2019-2020, they certainly have reason to be worried that that would be the reaction. But as I think about Kamala Harris, she's almost like a combination of Hillary and Obama. She's got the flip-flopping of Hillary, or maybe John Kerry, depending on your uh, perspective. But then she's able to really create a moment on the debate stage like Obama when she talked about herself being the girl in the busing. Hillary never could have done anything like that, never would would have even thought of it. But then, of course, she flip-flopped the position just like Hillary or Kerry would have.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, there are some people who found the line, you know, look, she knew it's some heading into the last debate. At some point, people were going to start talking over each other, right? At some point, it was going to turn into, you know, what they used to say, when they put it in the transcripts, it always just comes across as inaudible, right? (laughs) Everybody talks at once. And she had that line ready to go, hey, the American people don't want us to have a food fight. They want to work to talk about how we're going to help put food on their table. And everybody applauded. Now, you and I would say it's not the job of the president to put food in our table. <laughs> right? we're, we're not Oliver Twist begging for some more gruel from Mr. Bumble, right? You know, but nonetheless, it's a good line, right? You know, the food joke and all kind of stuff. It's, it's a gentle rebuke of everybody else. It focuses on the focus. It's a little bit of a zinger. You know, look, she came to play, and it was kind of striking how many candidates didn't really come. Uh, with their A game that day, and who really didn't seem ready for you know the big national stage there. So, um, you know, to the extent we're looking forward to next week, I think it's going to be really interesting. And also, if she's begun to slide uh, as that you know last debate kind of gets further and further into the rearview mirror, you know, I, I bet she's going to bring it next week. So, you know, we might we might see real fireworks between her and Biden next in this next one.
1: Could be, yeah. Joe Biden's going to be completely ready for the June debate this time, and uh, we'll see what he's if he's ready for the July debate. <laughs> All I needed was 30 days to prep. (laughs) Jim, we'll do it tomorrow. See you then.
0: See you tomorrow, Greg.
1: Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to like us and give us a nice review over on iTunes. We're also available on your home devices like Google Home and Alexa and things like that. We also want to remind you to visit our friends over at NetSuite by Oracle, netsuite.com slash martini. And tune in again Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.